Hi, my name is Kelly Bach, and I'm a third-year medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm one of the student producers of the podcast, and I'm excited to introduce Dr. Paul Offit to our show today. Dr. Offit is a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Disease and the Maurice R. Hillman Professor of Vaccinology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and an internationally recognized expert in the fields of virology and immunology. He is currently a member of the NIH Working Group on Vaccines, a subgroup of the larger Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines Committee, comprised of experts working to combat COVID-19. Dr. Offit was previously a member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Offit has published more than 150 papers in medical and scientific journals in the areas of rotavirus-specific immune responses and vaccine safety. He is also the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech, recommended for universal use in infants by the CDC. Please join our host, Dr. Robert Belfer, as he speaks with Dr. Paul Offit. Thank you, Kelly, and welcome, Paul, to the Children's Hospital Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Our team is very excited to share your expertise with our podcast audience. I want to break up the podcast, Paul. Initially, we'll talk about your latest book, and then I want to talk to you about a topic that everyone is asking you about, and that's COVID. So just first, a few icebreaker questions we ask all our guests. Paul, you wear a lot of hats. Your professional resume is expansive. What professional achievement are you most proud of? Well, I, mean, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created the strains that became the human bovine reassortant vaccine Rotatech. I was fortunate enough to be able to work with people like Stan Plotkin and Fred Clark. It was a 26-year effort, and it ended up being a vaccine that has virtually eliminated this virus from the United States and has probably saved hundreds of lives a day in the world. I was just lucky to be with those people. Very, very humble, Paul. So outside of rotavirus disease, what is your favorite disease or diagnosis and why? My favorite disease. What's my favorite disease? Like my favorite pestilence, you mean? Um, I guess it's favorite's probably not exactly the right word. Maybe intriguing is a better word. Um, I guess probably leprosy. I mean, aside from its sort of biblical references, it's uh, we we my wife and I actually were at Molokai, which is a leper colony, still an active rep- leper colony in the United States, decades ago. And so, seeing leprosy sort of up close was striking to me. It's just sort of the power of Mycobacterium leprae. It was sort of just really amazing. So, I guess leprosy. My favorite disease is leprosy. Okay, we'll put that on our list. Uh, all right, Paul. Let's talk about the book. Overkill, published in the spring of 2020. The title, again, Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. Paul, this is the 11th book that you've authored. What motivates you? What drives you to write books? Um, I think child advocacy at its heart, uh, um, more than anything else. And, and I think um, I'm struck by, at some level, the variance sometimes between clear scientific information that that instructs one to behave in a certain way in medicine and then not doing that. I I was trained at the University of Maryland. There were people there like Ted Woodward, Ellen Wall, John Diaconis, who were skeptics. Those were were skeptics in the days before people used the term skeptics or skeptical societies. And they just had you at a time when you were just trying to figure out what 
to do. I mean, how am I supposed to do all this? You didn't know anything. They were just telling you all the time, you know, just always look uh, behind the curtain, always make sure that, that what you're being asked to do is based in science. And I guess this book, at the heart of this book is, is about 15 examples of um, in modern medicine where there's clear scientific evidence that we shouldn't be doing something, but we do it anyway. And in this book, Paul, you debunk many common medical interventions that have long been spouted as gospel by patients and physicians alike. Despite mounting evidence that you cite in the book, these common medical interventions are damaging or even deadly. You discuss vitamins, sunscreen, eye drops for pink eye, stents for heart disease, and knee surgery. Paul, your writing style is one of a storyteller. In each chapter, you give historical perspectives of the medical interventions and then bring in relevant studies to refute these. Let's jump into some of them that specifically relate to pediatric emergency medicine. And you don't have to go far. Chapter one, treating fever can prolong or worsen illness. Let me just comment on some of the historical uh, vignettes that you quote. Parmenides, a Greek philosopher in 500 BC stated, give me the power to produce fever and I'll cure all disease. Hippocrates, the father of Western medicine, his advice, which is now part of his oath, contained the phrase primum non nocere, meaning first do no harm. You talk about the use of antipyretics, Paul. It seems that fever is currently treated as the origin of rather than the response to an illness. Your thoughts? Right. So, so everything that walks, crawls, swims, or flies on this planet can make fever, um, even though it's, it's not fun having fever. I mean, it causes headaches and chills and muscle aches. It's you pay a metabolic price for fever. You, you spend, expend a lot of energy for fever. So why do we do that? Why do we all do that? And the reason is, it's because it's a survival advantage. The purpose of fever is to increase your immune response. Um, the neutrophils, the white blood cells that travel to um, areas of bacterial infection, both travel more efficiently, ingest and kill more efficiently at a higher temperature. Um, the, the B cells and T cells that, that work in concert to make antibodies against viruses do that more efficiently um, and more quickly associated with fever. So, so, when you, so then you could logically ask the question, well, if that's true, then it, is, there, is there any evidence that when you treat fever that you can prolong or worsen illness? And the answer is yes, again and again and again and again. It is, it is remarkable, actually, how you've never been able to show either in experimental animals or in people any evidence that treating fever is in any way beneficial. And every time people have looked at this, it's harmful. So why do we continue to do it? I think we continue to do it because we mistakenly believe that if our fever's down. And then we feel better because we don't have the headaches or the muscle aches or the chills. Therefore, we are better. But there, there's clear evidence that you prolong and worsen illnesses. You shed viruses for longer. If you give uh, antipyretics, say, around the time of getting an, a, a vaccine, you lessen the immune response again and again. It's, uh, it's painful to watch. I'll give you one specific example because it was at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and it really struck me. And I still keep in contact with these parents who are great, by the way. But there was a boy who... Um, was a soccer player. He uh, was struck in the hip and developed the thrombophlebitis with MRSA. So day after day, he, he's shed MRSA in his bloodstream. Um, 
We, we treated with vancomycin, but nonetheless, he continued to be bacteremic. He, the, the bacteria seeded his lungs and caused lung abscesses. It seeded his brain and caused brain abscesses. It seeded his bones and joints, causing, you know, either osteoarthritis, osteomyelitis or, or uh, septic arthritis. Day after day, we treated him with antibiotics and could not clear his, his bloodstream of this, this bacteria. And day after day, every two hours, he was treated with sequential acetaminophen and, and ibuprofen until we finally sat down with the nurses, with the boy and with his parents and said, look, let's just stop this. Stop treating his, his fever because give his fever a chance to help his neutrophils work better. And the boy was great. He was brave. He was a brave little kid. And he, he, uh, he, he was willing to do that. The parents were willing to do that. The nurses were willing to do that. Within two days, the, the, his bacteria was cleared from his bloodstream. Now, that may have been coincidence. That's not a proof. But you can't convince either the parents or the boy of this, both of whom thought it was just a brilliant move. And I give credit to the nurses. It's not easy for nurses not to do this. Thermoregulation is one of the, the tenets on which they stand, but they went along with it. That's a great story, Paul. Thank you for sharing. Uh, you also alluded to uh, antipyretic use either before a child receives a vaccine or even after. Now, some parents are advised to give acetaminophen before coming to the pediatrician's office before they get vaccines or give acetaminophen right after they receive the vaccine. Paul, you're, you're a pro-vaccine uh, doctor. Doesn't this help parents with compliance if their child feels better after getting the vaccine? They're more likely to continue the series, maybe not delay the series. So isn't this helpful for compliance? Although you argue it decreases the antibody response. How do you balance the two? Right. Well, it, it's it, yeah. It's uh, there's clear evidence that it decreases the antibody response. And not only that, if it's a a multi multi dose series, you never quite catch up um, to where you should be after that first or second dose. So, it's a high price to pay for for feeling better, being more compliant, to lessen your immune response. Uh, you could argue that it, it doesn't necessarily always lessen it to a level below which what what would be considered uh, effective, but it still lessens it. And so, I just think we have to be much better at at getting people to to see fever for what it is, which is um, a viable part of your immune system that when you choose to blunt it, you are, you are blunting the immune system. Think of it as no different than chemotherapy. Think of it as no different than any other immune suppressive drug, because that's what it is. Antipyretics are an immune suppressive drug. Now, Paul, many doctors and also many parents insist on using antipyretics. Uh, let me give you some sort of lines on why both doctors and parents insist on using them and get your response. First and foremost, high fever can cause brain damage in a child. Well, that's not true. I mean, there, well, there's two types of fever. There's physiological fever, meaning the kind that your body generates by shivering, by dressing in warm clothing, when your sort of hypothalamus resets um, through, you know, the prostaglandin E2 mechanism, that's a physiological fever. Physiological fevers do not cause brain damage period. Um, environmental fevers can. Uh, so for example, the laborer, the football player, the military person who is uh, you know, sweating on a hot day, wearing heavy clothing, not being allowed to dissipate heat, that, that can suffer heat stroke, which can be devastating, can, ca can cause brain damage, can cause a variety of organ system damages, and can be fatal. There's about 600 deaths every year in the United States from heat stroke. This is not that. So, so no, it doesn't cause brain damage. I think the other thing people worry about is febrile seizures. Um, and certainly the, it's, but it's not the height of the temperature, the height of the fever that uh, causes the febrile seizure. It's the rapid rise in temperature, which is hard to predict. Um, and again, febrile seizures, while hard to watch, actually our daughter had a febrile seizure associated with a, a DTAP vaccine years ago. Um, it's hard to watch febrile seizures, but they, they are inconsequential, meaning they don't cause in any sense permanent brain damage. So 
again, that's not a reason not to treat either. But every child I see in the ER after their first febrile seizure, Paul, uh, they ask what they can do. And I give them the, the advice from your book and also from the studies on febrile seizures that the use of antipyretics does not reduce the recurrence of febrile seizures, yet it's something for them to do, Paul. They're a parent. They want to help their child. How, how do you answer that? Well, realize that when they're doing that, they're not helping. I mean, I'm all for doing things, but you should do things that actually work. I mean, the study after study has shown that uh, giving antipyretics as a way of trying to prevent febrile seizures doesn't work. I mean, I trained at a time in the 1970s when people gave phenobarbital to, to sort of a, a, a daily to try and prevent febrile seizures, which was even worse than what we're doing now. All right, here's a big one, Paul. Parents give antipyretics because they want to reduce the discomfort in their child. Obviously, a parent's role is to help their child. They want to get back to work sooner. They want to get back, they want their child to get back to school sooner. So what's your sort of uh, argument to, uh, or is there one, to reducing the discomfort, to being a good parent by treating their fever? You know, and that's the most compelling reason to treat. I mean, you you know, you want your child to feel better. You know, it's uncomfortable having a fever. The child's miserable, headaches, muscle aches, chills. It's not fun to watch a child with fever. Um, on the other hand, do realize that uh, that you are prolonging the illness in the end. So the degree to which you can at least lessen the, the amount to which you treat would be of value. Just try and wean yourself off of it if you can. But it's, that is the most compelling reason. I get that. It's why I think uh, that probably the end result of my writing the book isn't that everybody's going to read it and, and the entire culture of this country and the world will change and people will stop uh, treating fever with antipyretics and antipyretics makers will go out of business. I don't think that's going to happen, but I think we should at least think about what we're doing uh, when we're doing it. I see. So you, you alluded to your daughter as far as the reaction to the vaccine. And in the book, Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far, you do have some vignettes of both your daughter and your son uh, interluded into the different chapters. So here's a $64,000 question, Paul. Have you treated your children with antipyretics? You know, I, first of all, my, my wife, who's also a general pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, has been very good about not treating our children with antipyretics. I can't say we get like an A-plus on this. I mean, I think that one or more of us or both of us have occasionally treated the child with antipyretics and then sent them to school so we could go to work. But I would say we generally get like, I would say, A to A-minus on this. We're really generally not treating, have not treated them with antipyretics. Now they're in their 20s. They're both doing great. So it's possible not to treat children with antipyretics and still have them grow up to have, you know, to be functioning adults with jobs. All right, Paul, I want to focus on uh, my daily job and many of our listeners working in the emergency department. We see patient parents who come in with their child with a fever. They've never had a fever this high. In other words, they dealt with their child with fevers, low-grade fevers for days at a time, but the fever was very, very high. We were also taught, especially in the younger children, that the risk of serious bacterial infection may be slightly higher based on the height of the temperature. So your thoughts about uh, A, a high fever and the slightly increased risk of serious bacterial infection. I think that the, the, the better test for whether or not you have a, an invasive bacterial infection as compared to a viral infection, viral infection can cause very high fever. I mean, you can have a high fever with adenovirus for two weeks. It's how the child looks when the fever comes down. I think when the fever is down, the child still really looks sick. That That's a little more worrisome than a child who, when the fever comes down, looks pretty well. Because I think as a general rule, if you really look well when your fever is down, that's probably not likely to be an invasive bacterial disease. I think that's the better marker. 
And that's one of the tests, of course, we use in the ER. I mean, acetaminophen and ibuprofen uses sort of nurse triage to give in the ER for fever. And uh, obviously for a parent at home to be able to recognize the signs and symptoms of severe infection, you'd want to see them when the fever comes down. Sometimes we see patients come in the ER with a fever for an hour, Paul. Other times they say, we've been home for two, three, four days with the fever, but now it's day five. Maybe they've seen their pediatrician and they get referred to the ER for a prolonged fever. So Paul, how long is too long? Well, again, you, you know, viral infections can cause fever for a week, week and a half, two weeks. I remember our son when he was little had an RSV infection that lasted for a week, week and a half, high fevers. Um, so I, that, that, I don't think there is a sort of how long is too long. I think the more important question is how do they look when they're, when their fever is down and, and what, you know, the overall sort of physical exam and sense that you get. So I don't think there's sort of rules on this. Viral infections can cause prolonged fever. Many patients come in uh, and the parents say that they've been giving antipyretics and the fever has not budged. Uh, I think classically, Kawasaki's disease, uh, the fever is described as unresponsive to antipyretics. Any other diseases that we should be thinking of if the parent has been giving antipyretic use at the correct dose and uh, intervals? There are other rheumatologic diseases too. So I I think, yeah, that's a very good point. And that's a marker. So I think, you know, as physicians, we use a variety of markers uh, to try and figure out what's going on. I don't think there's any hard and fast rules on this. It's just uh, that's the art of what we euphemistically call the art of medicine. All right. Parents are going to use antipyretics. They may minimize their use like you and your wife did. Sometimes they don't. Many parents alternate the two common medicines, ibuprofen and acetaminophen. Actually, two-thirds of parents, some studies say, uh, alternate the use of these two medications. And the majority of them based on the advice of a nurse or a doctor. Talk about alternating the two antipyretic medications. Again, I think, you know, all you're doing is, is um, lessening the immune response. You know, Barton Schmitz, actually, who I think a lot of pediatricians look to for information here, has really modified his, his stance on this. Um, he and I actually worked together, putting together some guidelines that were published in Contemporary Pediatrics recently. Um, He's a great guy, and I think he's he's come around on this. What we 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 differed, and I think he's coming a little more to my point of view is that uh, he would have you know that you definitely treat over a certain temperature. And my point was that children can make high temp high fevers, and that that there isn't really a line that you cross where you absolutely have to treat. Um, because again, you know this is where you know children have a better immune response. So that's why they make higher fevers. They're good at this. So let them let their immune systems work for them. Don't try and blunt the immune response. I mean, that's the way I see it. It's not think of it as as a, as an immune suppressive agent. It's what it is. If we're going to use an antipyretic, Paul, any role in the initial dose, an oral dose, giving a loading dose. In other words, higher than the traditional every four or every six hour dose that you would normally give. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get into that because that, that means at some level I'm buying into the importance of antipyretics to tree fever, and I don't buy into it. Okay. Uh, Paul, in the inpatient setting, uh, the use of IV acetaminophen has sort of taken off. What, what are your thoughts on uh, the use of intravenous acetaminophen? Yeah, same thing. I, I, it's an immune suppressive agent. Do you really need now, now, in some cases, you can argue in the hospital. Um, if people, uh, children have, say, chronic lung disease, chronic heart disease, and they can't deal with the metabolic hit that comes with a high fever. That I understand. Um, I understand treating with antipyretics in that setting. But again, um, that's not most children. 
Great. And uh, Paul, you alluded to your wife, Dr. Bonnie Offit, who's a a esteemed pediatrician in the uh, CHOP network. And she was very instrumental in putting together the fever pathway uh, on the chop.edu website and making a video for parents. And I just want to sort of quote some of the lines that are recommended to parents who have febrile children. Number one, fever helps the body fight infection. Number two, how your child looks is most important, not the number on the thermometer. And number three, you do not need to use fever-reducing medications unless your child is uncomfortable. And of course, there are recommendations when to call your doctor. Paul, I think we can conclude compliance is bad. Changing the culture of treating fever won't be easy, but it is possible. How far have we come? How far do we need to go? I think we're taking our first steps into realizing the importance of this. I do. I think, um, first of all, Bonnie um, is great. She's really the real pediatrician. I mean, I spent 26 years inoculating mice in a windowless room that was concrete blocked at the Wistar Institute. So I'd go with her actually more than me. But uh, no, I think we're, I think we're, we're taking our first steps. Barton Schmidt is influential. I think people are, are, are getting there. They're seeing this for what it is. All right, Paul, I want to sort of change gears and you don't have to go far also. Turn to chapter two, titled, Finishing the Antibiotic Course is Often Unnecessary. And again, you start with a historical vignette, Dr. Alexander Fleming, who won the Nobel Prize in 1945 with two of his colleagues for inventing penicillin. At the Nobel Prize ceremony, he referred to one of the first patients they treated with penicillin, and he uttered the words, if you use penicillin, use enough. Doctors at the time misinterpreted his remarks, you state in the book, and this led to the birth of the lengthy antibiotic course. Explain. Right. Well, that was at a time, obviously, when um, penicillin was in short supply. Probably the entire length of, of, of treatment course was present in pretty much one dose today. So they saw a lot of relapse. They would treat and then there would be relapse. And so they were concerned that you needed to treat longer and with greater amounts of drug. And thus was born the sort of prolonged antibiotic course. I think um, what we're doing now is we're starting in as we take our first steps into the post-antibiotic era, when we have bacteria that are completely resistant to antibiotics. I mean, the most important thing, obviously, is, is to use antibiotics judiciously to not give them for viral infection. But second is not to continue to treat when you don't need to treat anymore. I, I, now you're starting to see study after study, including those done by people like Brian Fisher and Jeff Gerber at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, looking at shorter courses, shorter and shorter courses of antibiotics, answering the question, do we really need to treat this long? I mean, think about it. We treat for five days, 10 days, seven days, 14 days. I mean, bacteria don't replicate on the basis of the metric system or the lunar month. So, so why not just treat until the patient is better and stop? I, I, the example I use, and I think I use this example in the book, I mean, suppose you have a kidney infection, you have fever, you have back pain, you have bacteria in your urine, you have white cells in your urine. You treat for a couple of days or three days with antibiotics, the white cells are gone, the bacteria are gone, the fever is gone, the back pain is gone, you're better. Why do we continue to treat? And now you're seeing you can treat. When I trained, we treated for 14 days with intravenous antibiotics for pyelonephritis. And then we started, now we're starting to see you don't need to treat for that. There's studies done 10 days, seven days, five days, in some cases, you know, shorter three days. I mean, so, so, you know, we can treat for shorter and shorter amounts of time. 
Um, and I, those are hard studies to do because you don't want to find out that, you know, that didn't work and that there is a relapse. But certainly, I mean, there are definitely abundant evidence you can treat for as little as five days for uh, pyelonephritis. You know, it's just once your immune system abates, your immune system is saying, we've done our job. We've killed the bacteria that are there. So giving an antibacterial medicine doesn't matter anymore. So just stop. And now you see studies like with pneumonia in the intensive care unit, intensive care unit pneumonia, that two day, two afebrile days is enough. And there's no difference between that or treating for longer. Paul, you reference in the book, speaking of antibiotic duration, a public service announcement in 2016 by the World Health Organization. It was actually published during Antibiotic Awareness Week. They advise patients to always complete the full prescription, even if you feel better, because stopping antibiotics early promotes the growth of drug-resistant bacteria. This is from who? Only four short years ago. Your thoughts now? Well, there's there's abundant evidence. I think I cited at least a review article in, in the uh, book that I wrote um, that the opposite is true, as you would imagine. The, the longer you treat with antibiotics, the more likely you are to develop resistance. Obviously, a shorter course was, is less likely. I mean, think about it as sort of a field of, uh, of wheat. And, you know, there's there's 999 grains that, or, or uh, stalks that are sensitive to antibiotics and one that's not. As you will continue to wipe out the field, that one stalk that's resistance then has the ability to grow more. So the longer you treat, the more you allow that to happen. It, and, and there is abundant evidence for the what is completely intuitive, that the longer you treat, the more likely you are to develop resistance. So I don't know why we think that. I don't know why it's probably, I'd like to think we're starting to get away from it though. Certainly at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, we are. I think people like Brian, uh, Fisher and Jeff Gerber really have taken the lead on this about trying to be more sensible about the use of antibiotics. Uh, Paul, big pharma is booming cancer drugs, heart drugs, biologics. When was the last time a new class of antibiotics entered the market? I think it was in the late 1980s. I don't think we've really had uh, new classes of antibiotics, but it's not worth it for the companies. I mean, antibiotics are something used once or a few times. It's, it's not like you know, drugs that you're using every day, like lipid lowering agents or diabetes drugs or neurological drugs. So antibiotics aren't worth it to them. And even if you came out with a great antibiotic, a perfect antibiotic that killed all bacteria, including all resistant bacteria, people are going to save that antibiotic and use it very, very sparingly. So it's really not worth it for these companies for the most part. So as opposed to your first chapter, Paul, when parents and physicians are really not in tune with, with the use of antipyretics, families actually heed the advice of this chapter. Finishing the antibiotic course is often unnecessary. I've seen studies where 10 days of antibiotics are prescribed and compliance on day eight or nine is less than 10%. So is this an area where parents get it? Yes, this is an area where parents get it. It doesn't make sense to them. I mean, you know, for example, the greater than two or three-year-old who's being treated with 10 days of antibiotics for an ear infection, the child's fine after two or three days. They're thinking, first of all, it's hard to get antibiotics into the young child. And they're thinking, why am I doing this? He's fine. He's running around. He looks great. Yes. Of course, then they save the antibiotic and then use it sort of on their own next time. But the fact of the matter is they do get this, this part of it. So yeah, I think you're preaching to the choir with them if you try and get them to use lesser, uh, less, less long doses of antibiotics. And, and most readers of your book, I think, and also most listeners uh, to our podcast, they know that doctors dispense too many unnecessary antibiotics. But research has shown, Paul, that no factor was as strongly associated with patient satisfaction as receipt of a prescription for an antibiotic. How do you counter that? 
change the rules. I mean, right now the tail wags the dog. You know, the doctors understand that they're being rated by their patients. That they understand that um, they're more popular if they write a prescription and give it to people than if they don't. And so they're willing to do that. It's too bad because ultimately it doesn't serve the patient. I think the patient, what the doctor should do, even though they may have to pay a price for it, is stand up for the child and and do what's best for the child. And 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 it's not just a matter of mouth. It's easy for me to say that because I'm a researcher and don't deal with this. But you know, so so that's why I can say it. Um, you know, just stand up for the child, do what's right for the child, uh, even if it means at some level it make make you a little less popular. Paul, you quote studies in the book Overkill when modern medicine goes too far about recent estimates that up to 30 to 50 percent of all antibiotic prescriptions are are unnecessary. And the actual number is probably closer to 75 percent. You allude to azithromycin, which is the most prescribed antibiotic, yet it's not the first line choice for any common bacterial infection. Yes, Jeff Gerber uh, educated me on this, as has Talene Metchin, both of whom are part of the judicious use of antibiotics program at CHOP. Right. I mean, it's just, it's too, I think the problem there is that the term ZPAC is too easy to remember. Paul, thank you for commenting on the initial two chapters of your most recent book, Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. Now, let's transition to talk about a subject that now fills a large part of your day as a member of the FDA's Independent Advisory Committee, the COVID vaccine. A simple question to start, Paul. Prior to March of 2020, as part of the emergency department testing for respiratory viruses, we tested for RSV, influenza, rhinovirus, and actually coronavirus. So why is this coronavirus different from all other coronaviruses? Right. So this is a, uh, the four coronaviruses that typically circulate in the United States every year and probably account for maybe 15% of what we see coming into our hospital as a respiratory infection. This is a different virus. I mean, it's not a human coronavirus. It's a bat coronavirus that has now, um, in association with other um, uh, sequences from, from animals or mammals like pangolins, which I'd never even heard of till uh, this virus emerged, is a different virus. This, although it's called coronavirus, it certainly looks like coronavirus. It's a single-stranded positive sense RNA virus like coronavirus. This coronavirus does things that no other coronavirus has ever done. I mean, it, it most importantly, it causes this, this unusual multi-system inflammatory disease of children, uh, MISC, which I know of no virus doing. Um, it's a little like Kawasaki's, but not really. It, it can also look a little like toxic shock syndrome. It has a different cytokine and chemokine profile, but but um, what virus does that? It, the most damaging thing it does is it causes vasculitis. I mean, it damages endothelial cells that line vessels. Um, therefore, um, because all organ systems have blood supplies, it really affects all organ systems, uh, including, you know, it can cause strokes, heart attacks, uh, liver disease, kidney disease. What respiratory virus does that? I mean, what enveloped, respiratory virus that is spread by small droplets causes this level of vasculitis. I mean, that's unheard of. It clearly has a propensity for uh, nursing homes, much more so than even flu. And it also, just recently, a couple articles in Science showed that it has the capacity to less, as a man especially, to lessen your immune response. It has, it has actually immunosuppressive properties. This is a frightening virus that can cause long-term side effects. In addition to just killing you from pneumonia, it can cause long-term side effects. We've had kids in our hospital, a children's hospital, uh, Philadelphia, where you look at their chest x-ray, they look like they have a vasculitis. It just doesn't look like that diffuse interstitial infiltrate you'll see with a virus disease. This is a weird, unusual virus. So um, 
And it's also, it, it, it causes vasculitis without really causing viremia. I, you know, viremia occurs less than 1% of the time with this virus. Yeah, the pediatric population, poll you mentioned, outside of the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, that is going to be a topic of our a future uh, PEM podcast. Why are pediatric patients less likely to either get disease or severe disease? We seem to all pediatric patients seem to get all other respiratory viruses. Why have we been spared compared to our uh, adult counterparts? It looks like it may be related to the presence of a, a binding receptor on the surface of, uh, of cells, which, is, which appears to be maturational. I mean, as you get older and older, the, the, this, this ACE, so-called ACE2 uh, receptor is expressed more and more on cells. There was been a couple studies in that one in JAMA not too long ago. I think that's the reason. It's lack of receptor. As a leading virologist, are you surprised that we have not seen such a pandemic in our lifetime or since the deadliest pandemic in history, the 1918 influenza? And also, what are the chances of seeing another pandemic like illness in the near future? Well, you have to believe it's going to happen. I mean, SARS-1, you know, sort of raised its head in 2002. It was gone by 2004. Um, it was. It really only caused pretty much a severe or moderate to severe disease. So it's very easy to sort of put a moat around it as compared to SARS-CoV-2, which is spread primarily by asymptomatic spread, which is makes it so heinous. You, you, anybody could give this virus to you. Um, and then MERS sort of raised its head in 2012. It's kind of, you know, percolated along below the surface, um, but again, never took off. I, I assume, I mean, you know, most of the viruses that we have were originally animal viruses, most HIV, rotavirus, flu is a bird virus. So we live in association with our animals and, and, and these viruses occasionally cross over. I'm sure that it's going to happen again and very possibly in the near future. Let's talk, Paul, a little bit about the vaccine. It's a two-dose series, many of them. Yeah, so the, the, the first vaccines that are being um, put forward now are the so-called genetic plug-and-play vaccines, which is to say that you um, you know the protein you're interested in. It's the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, specifically the receptor binding domain on the spike protein. If you can make antibodies to that protein, because that's the virus binding protein, you can then prevent virus from binding cells and presumably infecting cells or set another way infecting you. All those approaches initially um, are there. It's the easiest to construct because you know the gene that codes for, codes for the SARS-CoV-2 protein, um, spike protein, you can then have an mRNA vaccine or a DNA vaccine or use a viral vector to get that gene into your cell, either a replication competent vector, or replication defective vector. Those are all the original approaches because they're the easiest to construct, the fastest to mass produce, and those are the first ones that we're going to see. And we've now seen, if I'm allowed to say what date it is, it's November 16th. Um, 2020, but we now have two vaccines, both the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are going to likely be uh, submitted for uh, approval through the emergency use authorization at the beginning of December. I'm actually on the FDA's vaccine advisory committee. So we will hear about these vaccines in the beginning of December. Assuming there's no surprises, I think in all likelihood, we will approve those vaccines. And then, then by the end of December, beginning of January, you will start to see those vaccines rolling off the assembly line into the arms of the American public. So um, I know I'm making a prediction that's going to happen two months from now when this is going to be airing, but I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to, to dare to be sort of stupid in this, but I really do think we're going to see these vaccines by no later than early next year. And the duration of protection from the vaccine versus natural disease, is there a difference or do we know that? No, no. So, so what, what you'll know is, see, what's interesting is that that um, I think people got scared when when hydroxychloroquine was approved through emergency use authorization. They thought, you know, it, there was no proof that it worked, and now we know that not only did it not work to treat the disease, it didn't prevent the disease. Ten percent of people who got that that particular drug actually had cardiac arrhythmias. 
So it should have never been approved. Now we know. And similarly, the, the convalescent plasma, when it was approved, there was all this fanfare about how amazing it was going to be. It too had never been shown to work. It too was approved through emergency use authorization. So now you have vaccines that are going to be approved through emergency use authorization. The critical difference is these vaccines are being ex- subjected to huge prospective placebo-controlled phase three studies as any vaccine would be. I mean, Moderna's a 30,000 participant trial. Pfizer's 44,000, Johnson Johnson, 60,000. So if that's true, then why don't they just submit these for biological license applications and get licensed like every other vaccine? And the answer is because the trials aren't being done for long enough. So you're only going to know that these vaccines are effective for a couple months. Does that also mean that they're going to be effective for six months or a year? I think the answer is yes. I think there may be some fading of immunity, but I can't imagine it would be hugely fading immunity. The early trials for Pfizer and Moderna's mRNA vaccines is that they're in the mid 90% range of effective. That's amazing. And so we'll see. And then the issue of safety, I think, which probably most people are worried about, especially healthy young people who are unlikely to die from this, was it tested for long enough to make us comfortable that it's safe? And so the plan is is that they will be tested for um, at least two months after the second dose. So at least half of the people who are recruited into the trials on the vaccine side will be tested for um, at least two months after the last. So you'll have tens of thousands of people who, who will see have safety tests. And if you look at the serious side effects that can occur after vaccines, it usually occurs within six weeks. So I think we're jumping with the net there. And the fact is, you're not going to do a two or three year study with these vaccines. When when a quarter of a million people are dying every year, at least have died the first year here, you don't have the luxury of doing that. So I do think that we will have reduced a critical amount of uncertainty before this vaccine's got get get out there and, and know that we'll be looking. I mean, they, through systems like the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, Vaccine Safety Data Link, um, the so-called v, V-SAFE mechanism now that CDC and FDA are running, I think we will we will have a very good idea of, about whether there's a very rare side effect, which we're only going to pick up post-approval post um, once the vaccine gets out there. But I think the benefits will outweigh the risk at the time of, of uh, approval. So again, we're going to have to weigh, like I said, the efficacy of the vaccine versus the rare, uh, albeit there may be some side effects. Let me ask you something, Paul. Do you advocate a private sector mandate for the vaccine? Uh, Many health systems uh, mandate an annual flu vaccine to be employed at that institution. All vendors need to be vaccinated to enter uh, the health system. Uh, What are your thoughts about some type of private sector mandate, either uh, in 2021 or going forward? No, for two reasons. One is that just practically, you're not going to have enough vaccine to mandate it. I mean, people, you know, this, these vaccines will have tens of billions of doses if we're lucky. Where you know, the ACI Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices and National Academy of Medicine, basically, if you look at their first tier recipients, meaning people who are in healthcare, people who are in other essential industries like transportation or law enforcement or education, uh, people who are over 65, people who uh, have certain healthcare conditions, that's like 150 million Americans. And that's half of the adult American population. That for a two-dose vaccine, that's 300 million doses. We're not going to get there very quickly. So I think we're going to have to wait. So mandating it when you don't have enough vaccine doesn't make much sense. Secondly, just personally, I think, you know, you have this virus, this, this difficult to characterize, elusive virus that's already caused a number of clinical and pathological changes you would have never predicted that you are now about to combat with a series of vaccine strategies with no commercial experience. I mean, there is no mRNA vaccine. I mean, there is, at least in the United States, no vectored viral vaccines. I mean, the dengue vaccine and the Ebola vaccines were that, but those weren't commonly, those weren't used in the continental United States. So I, I, I would feel a little uncomfortable mandating something like that until there was a little more data, frankly. 
Okay, let's assume over the 12 months of 2021, uh, more and more doses are manufactured. Uh, so supply, although you said it's going to be limited, let me ask you a question. Do you yourself get vaccinated uh, during the first wave? Let me see the data. Uh, I mean, let, let me see the data in people my age. For people who are over 65, have they been adequately tested? Do we have a decent safety profile? How effective are they? The, the, uh, the press release that just came out uh, yesterday on uh, Moderna's uh, trial was they had 15 people who got ill who were over 65 years of age. And we know that the vaccine, at least that vaccine, was 95% effective. Um, love to see the breakdown on those people who are over 65. But yeah, I mean, I'm perfectly willing to get this vaccine if I feel that um, my group has been adequately studied. And how about your uh, adult children, Paul, 20s, 30s? Uh, they seem to be flouting the mask rule when they're congregating in restaurants and bars. What would be your re recommendation? Again, assuming unlimited supply of the vaccine. I think once we get the, 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 the get to the people who really will benefit from it the most, yeah, sure, I do think we need to, to immunize the general population. I really do think that 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 with a combination of, of vaccine, um, mask wearing and social distancing and hygienic measures, and, and at some level population immunity induced by natural infection, um, I think we can by next Thanksgiving have gotten this virus under, under a, a much, much greater control than where we are now. I, I'm really optimistic we can do that. Um, it's too bad that the most powerful of the three that I just mentioned <laughs> seems to be the one that's been the most politicized. I mean, there's, there's wearing masks and social distancing is the smartest thing you can do to prevent yourself from getting sick or giving the virus to others. Thanks, Paul. I want to just close by sort of you attempting to predict the future, specifically in pediatric infectious disease. Uh, we've already seen a decrease in numbers of pediatric respiratory infections to uh, primary care practices, urgent cares, ERs. Uh, Will mask wearing become permanent in the hospital setting, in public? It's a great question. I mean, if you look, for example, in the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, South America, it was a very, very mild flu season. Now, maybe it was going to be a mild flu season anyway. Um, we'll see as the virus comes up to the United States. But it, it does make sense that if you wear a mask, you're not just going to only prevent SARS the SARS-CoV-2 respiratory infection, but all respiratory infections, including influenza. I mean, this past year, there were more than 400,000 hospitalizations from flu, about 20,000 deaths from flu. The year before that, there were, you know, about uh, eight, seven, 800,000 hospitalizations and 60,000 deaths from flu. I mean, if you wore a mask over the, over the winter, you definitely decrease your chance of getting flu. It makes sense. But we don't do that. I mean, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles season ticket holder. Uh, every every winter I go out there to Eagles games and and don't wear a mask. But first of all, in part, because it's hard to boo through a mask. But, you know, I mean, if I wore a mask, I think, you know, uh, I, I would be protecting myself. Speaking of your uh, fandom for the Eagles, uh, my son recently graduated from the University of Michigan, and one of my bucket lists was attending football games at the Big House, 110,000 people. Obviously, anyone uh, who watches games this past season saw empty college football stadiums. What is attendance going to look like? When will the Big House uh, be full of 110,000 people? Will it be next year, two years, three years, or never? Yeah, I, th I think the question is, at what level of disease and hospitalization and death do we feel a line has been crossed? I mean, if, with all the things, the three things I mentioned, sort of natural infection, immunization, and uh, 
and hygienic measures in place, we will definitely lower the incidence of disease and hospitalization and death, but we're not going to eliminate it, not anytime soon, I think, the end of the year or the end of even next year. But we'll, we'll decrease it to a level at which we feel comfortable taking the risk, much as we take the risk every year for flu and other viral infections. I don't know what that line is. I guess we'll find out. I will tell. Thank you, Paul, uh, for sharing uh, your expertise with us. On behalf of Kelly and the entire uh, CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, we want to thank you for your time and expertise. Hopefully, we'll have you back, Paul, uh, when a a future topic uh, crosses your areas of interest. So again, thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. That was fun.